Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Sibylline's podcast series. Jonathan Dunbar here, Sibylline's EMEA director. I'm joined by John Breen, our lead global risks analyst, and James Hannon, one of our key intelligence analysts. Supported by the wider Insight team, John and James have been spearheading our COVID-19 reporting line and other related projects with the aim of providing as much timely, accurate, and relevant intelligence on the pandemic as possible. A quick shout out to our teammate, Sabrina Mangum, who has also been part of our overall COVID-19 reporting alongside John and James. To the issue at hand, though, and uh, thank you both for joining me today. We've seen a growing amount of scrutiny over the vaccine rollout, especially in Europe in recent weeks. And as evidence in the diplomatic wrangling last week, there were some difficulties between AstraZeneca and the EU over distribution, which highlighted political sensitivities over Brexit and Northern Ireland in particular. John, can you give us a brief overview of what happened and where we stand now? Hi, JD. Yeah, so basically on the 22nd of January, AstraZeneca warned that it was going to cut deliveries to the EU due to production capacity issues within its European supply chain. And there was a lot of back and forth over contract issues between the EU and the company itself. But it became apparent that the EU is now still facing vaccine shortages. This drove a number of member states in the EU to ask the Commission for greater autonomy in their ability to restrict vaccine exports. And as a result, the EU announced it would establish a vaccine transport mechanism until the end of March to control shipments to non-EU countries. However, shortly after the the mechanism was announced, reports began to emerge that the Commission had triggered Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol to prevent vaccines exported to Northern Ireland entering the UK. So just to kind of give a bit of background to our listeners, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol falls under the Brexit Treaty, and it states that all EU products exported from the EU to Northern Ireland do not undergo uh, customs checks as Northern Ireland remains in the single market for goods and continues to operate under EU customs rules. At the same time, Northern Ireland businesses aren't subject to non-tariff measures when exporting to the EU. And the EU and the UK agreed to the protocol as a resolution to the Irish border question, which would avoid any return of checkpoints along a politically sensitive frontier and to minimise political uh, potential disruption of cross-border trade. The EU invoked Article 16 as it was concerned about vaccines potentially entering the UK via Northern Ireland. But by invoking the article, they effectively implemented a hard border on the island of Ireland. And it was condemned by all parties in the north, as well as across the UK and Irish governments. And they ultimately backed down within a matter of hours and reached a compromise with the Irish government where vaccines would be reported from Dublin that were being exported to the north. But either way, it was an incredibly short-sighted move from Brussels. Uh, Firstly, they didn't notify London or Dublin in advance of the decision. The Irish Prime Minister first heard of it through through a public statement. And secondly, it kind of exposed the EU's lack of knowledge on the sensitivity surrounding the border. From within Northern Ireland, the issue amplified political tensions brewing since the Brexit referendum as uh, Northern Ireland voted to remain within the EU 
Uh, as a result, the Irish Republican Party, Sinn Féin, have consistently called for a referendum to determine whether Northern Ireland can remain part of a united Ireland. In the same week uh, of the Article 16 incident with the EU, there was a, a poll conducted by the London Times, which indicated that 51% of Northern Irish residents would support a referendum on, uh, on a united Ireland. So Sinn Féin subsequently called on the Irish government to actively consider this, and this kind of provoked a response from the unionists who've now called for the Northern Irish Protocol to be scrapped. And it kind of illuminates their insecurities over the prospect of a border poll, uh, which Sinn Féin have called for. Thank you for that, John. Let's have a look across the, the channel and uh, have a look at Europe and how it's faring with, with vaccine distribution and the issues there. James, what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, what are the challenges that European governments are confronted with? Thanks, JD. Touching on um, some of the major constraints facing European governments uh, on the vaccine distribution front, there are many in the very complex logistical supply chain of going from you know, production to getting shots in arms. However, there's a couple key points that we can touch upon, one of which is this upscaling of production uh, on the company side of things. So you have several manufacturers that are facing these immediate constraints in terms of their production capabilities. And they're looking for ways to kind of build this out through cooperative agreements. You have uh, Pfizer partnering with Sanofi and AstraZeneca partnering with this uh, Dutch company called Halix. However, given the demanding nature of the EU timetable for vaccinations, this is kind of leading to some hiccups as these programs get underway. And you're seeing this exasperation play out also on the governmental side in terms of how vaccines are being distributed because there is not enough recruitment of medical staff in order to actually inoculate patients at the rate that governments are demanding. And so you're seeing quite a few governments, most recently, you know, Portugal and several of the Scandinavian countries start to bring retired healthcare workers back into the fold to try and make up that ground in terms of a recruitment drive in order to actually action these kind of distribution processes that they're looking for. And this is kind of causing these, these pain points for these companies as they're building out their capabilities themselves. Thank you for that, James. So in terms of Europe, what about the rest of the year? How is this going to look? Yeah, so I think we're already seeing the effects of this kind of hiccup in vaccine rollout. You know, a lot of countries are pushing out their immunization timetables. And as a result of this and this kind of lack of herd immunity, um, you're seeing governments start to extend lockdown restrictions. And this kind of oscillation of restrictions will probably continue through the entirety of 2021. And the result of this could lead to greater social unrest and some exacerbated violence. Uh, just this last week, we saw this in Austria, Belgium, and the Netherlands with several nights of protests in uh, Amsterdam. And as a result of this, like in the long term as well, on the corporate side of things, you know, we have companies that are moving more towards a permanent hybrid work schedule and this extension of work from home capabilities to kind of mitigate against the risk that is these uh, stopgap restrictions being lifted and then drop basically a month by month basis. And this is the kind of cycle that we're going to see until some uh, genuine traction with the vaccination rates picks up. And we, we hope that this happens towards the end of this year, but as of right now, the short-sighted impact of logistical issues is going to play out uh, in this way. No, thanks for that, James. Moving on to my next question. What about at the global, at the global level and vaccine distribution? You know, what are we looking at in terms of timelines there? Any challenges or obstacles we may face? James, any thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, on the European side of things, we're looking 
at uh, vaccine rates to pick up gradually in Q2 as these companies iron out these logistical issues, you know, and um, recruitment of medical workers kind of hits this fifth year. And we project around 60 70% of the European population to have received at least one jab by the end of 2021. And this rate pales in comparison to, to this uh, global outlook, which is kind of backed by, especially in the developing world, uh, the WHO's COVAX fund, this uh, vaccine sharing program. And according to their data, they only expect to administer about 25 to 27% of the jabs necessary to actually to inoculate uh, the populations of these countries by the end of this year. And you see a lot of developing countries, particularly in Africa and parts of Asia, um, having immunization timetables stretching out all the way to mid to late 2023. And the result of this is, you know, you can see exacerbated political situations, a like sharp gap in socioeconomic growth widen as a result of this, as well as this risk to business implications in these regions as well, as these international restrictions will likely remain in place for these areas until this acceptable level of immunization occurs. And so you really can see a widening of, of this gap on a socioeconomic level, on a travel level, as well as on a political level in these regions as a result of this control of vaccine-like consumption by developed nations compared to developing nations. John, you got any thoughts on this? I think James has covered a lot of what we anticipate for the next six to 12 months. But what I would like to add is some of the continuing risks that various organizations will need to mitigate through 2021. Firstly, COVID-19 will continue amplifying pre-existing social and economic inequalities, which could drive social unrest, as James uh, previously mentioned. A K-shaped economic trajectory is likely to impact most countries through 2021, which will exacerbate underlying class, ethnic and religious tensions, particularly in low and middle income countries that are at the bottom of the list for vaccines and where governments have limited fiscal resources at their disposal. Governments will remain the primary targets of any social unrest, but organisations perceived as complicit in driving these inequalities could become targets themselves. Secondly, vaccine delays, inadequate testing and the resulting travel restrictions and lockdowns that James mentioned will disproportionately impact certain industries, notably aviation and travel. Other industries like brick and mortar retail will also experience disruptions as online consumption patterns strengthen throughout the year. The flexible working environment will continue through 2021 as well, but this will further expose businesses to opportunistic threat actors, particularly in the cybersphere. And finally, uh, these government restrictions that will continue disrupting supply chains throughout the year and amid the current geopolitical climate will drive a much broader conversation within governments around reshoring supply chains, particularly for critical infrastructures. John, James, thank you both for joining me today. And I'm sure you'll agree that insight was very worthwhile. And thank you for all your efforts again in moving forward and pushing forward our understanding of the pandemic. I'm now joined by our Deputy Insight Team Manager, Amy Reynolds, for a bit of a look forward over the next week and what events around the world we should be watching or be concerned with. Amy, what's on your radar? What are you looking at at the moment? Well, to start with, there are a couple of upcoming events to note in the Asia-Pacific region. Firstly, in India, a nationwide agitation has been called by farmers' unions for this coming Saturday, the 6th of February. 
as they continue to protest against controversial agricultural reform laws. Disruption to travel is highly likely on this date, as the protesting farmers have planned a three-hour blockade of some of the country's major highways and roads, while there's also a possibility of some violence if demonstrators clash with police. And then we also, of course, have the Lunar New Year period just around the corner on the 12th of February, which will be marked not only in China, but also in Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam and Taiwan. And it's typically one of the busiest periods of the year for travel and social gatherings and entertainment. Although this year, of course, uh, COVID-19 and the various countermeasures in place will, you know, add complications and are likely to dampen consumer spending and depress revenues for retail, travel and hospitality businesses during what would usually have been a bumper season, now in many cases for the second year running as well. So what about further westwards, Amy? Are we seeing anything on either side of the Atlantic uh, in the Americas? Yes, certainly. Well, to start with, so on the 7th of February, there's a presidential election taking place in Ecuador. There look to be three candidates who are set to do well. So we anticipate a runoff, which will then take place in April. We don't really expect any notable unrest around the election, but it does raise a significant policy risk. The socialist candidate is currently leading in the polls and is making pledges such as cash handouts to families uh, who are currently struggling amidst the country's economic downturn. And whilst this type of policy may, of course, you know, appeal to voters, um, ultimately a socialist direction doesn't bode well for the country's oil export dependent economy, and it may well serve to deter foreign investment. And then indeed, as you mentioned, in, in Russia, from today the 4th until Saturday the 6th of February, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell is in Moscow attending some meetings with Russian officials regarding the decision to imprison opposition leader Alexei Navalny. But really, to be honest, the EU's pressure on Russia to change this decision is unlikely to have any notable impact. Meanwhile, we expect that the pro-Navalny protests um, will continue in the week ahead. But these are likely to gradually diminish and will be a bit smaller in scale than what we've seen in the last two weeks though they will continue to be met with a strong police presence. Thank you for that overview, Amy. Definitely some uh, key dates to watch as we, as we move into the next week. Thank you all those have joined us too for listening, and I hope you have found this useful. As ever, if you'd like to know more, please do get in touch. Mm-hmm.